Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Intel Officer, Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Bill, how are you today? Hey, Ward. Great. Fortunately, I got in early before the traffic got uh, insane in the D.C. Uh, Beltway area today. Uh, had uh, half an inch of slush slash snow, which is, you know, crisis in Washington. Crisis. So, uh, yeah. But we're here, and it's uh, it's Wednesday. we got a great guest today, and uh, uh, yeah, we got a lot going on. A lot going on. So before we get to the guests, let's chat real quickly about the Vincent's Port Call in Da Nang. First time uh, aircraft carrier has had a port call since the Vietnam War. Um, I will say at a personal level, my father served in Da Nang as an A-4 pilot, Marine Corps captain in uh, 66 and 67. And I I know um, he is surprised uh, that this this is an eventuality, right? So this isn't what he predicted. Um, In some ways, you could say this is a sign that maybe we won the war. (laughs) Right, right, right. I remember, was it uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, the USS John S. McCain taking, you know, v- visiting uh, Vietnam and, and thinking that same thing. You know, here's the uh, ship McCain, um, named for the, the father of the POW. Um, but, you know, having that ship visit Vietnam was was a win, right? And now having a U.S. aircraft carrier pull into uh, Da Nang and visit Vietnam uh, is another example of that win, and it's also a strategic message, uh, as everyone probably knows, uh, towards China. You know, hey, we are here. Uh, we are friends. We have allies. We've got uh, uh, interests in the region. Uh, it's a it's an, uh, a strategic message from us to uh, the Chinese. It's also a strategic message from us to the region, uh, as well as from the Vietnamese to the Chinese that they would invite a U.S. aircraft carrier. Uh, to come and have a port visit. That's that's a very strong signal of independence from Vietnam towards uh, towards China. Yeah. Uh, so but, again, I'm not I'm not kidding when I say you could view this as a victory in the Vietnam War, right? I mean, yes, Vietnam is a communist country, um, but if you I, I've I've not been there, but I know people. Uh, I have academy classmates who've who've been to Hanoi or Hanoi and uh, other places, and they they say it's really a, a great tourist destination. Um, and uh, you know this sort of normalcy, and then from a foreign policy standpoint, in a uh, you know sort of uh, national security perspective, the way you framed it is exactly right. Suddenly, the idea of Vietnam being an ally against China is a whole new calculus, right? And so you could say that this is all the hard-fought gains of the Vietnam era, you know? And uh, so that's that, that's a very interesting development. It'll be interesting to hear the reports from uh, the air wing and from the other folks on Vincent who are actually pulling into port there right. as to what, what the quality of liberty is, because you know that's I'm, what... I'm guess, guessing they're going like to have a great I, time. Uh, uh, like what level of great time? True. Like, uh, you know, Benidorm, great time. Um, I mean, Palma, great time. Uh, you know, uh, Alongapo, great yeah. time. What kind of what kind of great time are we talking about there, right? I mean, there's Singapore, great time, right? Great restaurants, right? Cool city, very, uh, you know, urban atmosphere. And, uh, you know, I, I noticed that they're anchored out. So I don't know what boating looks like, right? It was, that was always the X factor. Yeah, I have not right? been either. <laughs> yeah. 
and you got to you got to be Bodo a lot. Which yeah, is, uh, I did. A lot I was of, Bodo. A lot of fun in the winter in the Mediterranean ports when the weather would get. In know, fact, I, I I ran into. Bad. Speaking of that, I was at the uh, the brigade wrestling finals. Or no, I'm sorry, the Boxing. Army Navy. No, the Army nope. Navy wrestling, wrestling okay. match, right? And ran into the guy who was the A nav aboard Kennedy for my second cruise during my first tour, right? So as you know, the ANAV is the man when it comes to Bodo assignments. And so we were reminiscing about the Kennedy in the med and some of the ports we went into and some of the boating situations we had to uh, endure. I mean, it's seriously man-against-the-sea stuff, you know, winter in the med. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it was nuts. It's, it's not pleasant. Yeah. Right. All right, so why don't we get to our guest? Okay, so we have online today from uh, Norfolk, Lieutenant J.G. Daniel Stephanus, U.S. Navy, uh, who is becoming a, uh, a prolific uh, proceedings author. Uh, so Daniel, has, he's cracked the code, and I, for everyone out there, if you're, <laughs> if you're looking for the gouge, right, uh, you can use Daniel as an example because Daniel figured out that uh, – uh, writing for essay contests for the Naval Institute is um, it's lucrative. It's, yes, in fact, that's his job now. <laughs> right. uh, so, He's told the Navy he doesn't need any money. Right. So, so Daniel Daniel came on our radar scope uh, a little over a year ago when um, he when his essay uh, embracing the dark battle won the 2016 General Prize Essay Contest. Uh, we published that in the April issue of uh, of 2017, but uh, it was uh, it was great to have a, a a young officer win the general prize essay contest. Uh, we all know that that goes back uh, well over 100 years, and it's the most prestigious uh, annual contest uh, that the Naval Institute runs every year. Uh, and then, it, it, you know, he hasn't stopped, right? So he uh, wrote, <laughs> he wrote another piece uh, for the CNO's Naval History Essay Contest last summer. Uh, took third prize. Uh, we published that in October. That article is called Of Sons and Dragons. Uh, and then he won, um, was it second or third prize, Daniel, in the Marine Corps Essay Contest? Second. Second prize in the in the Marine Corps Essay Contest uh, last summer, which we published in the November issue. And that, uh, that essay was called From Wells to Wings. So, Daniel, uh, thank you for joining us today. How are things down in Norfolk? Thank you for having me. Uh, they're a little chilly, but not nearly as bad as it is up in D.C. No snow. So tell us about your current assignment. So I am currently, uh, I'm actually in my, pretty much my last month uh, of, uh, I've been, I was the assistant operations officer, now I'm the assistant training officer, and amphibious squadron six here in Norfolk. So uh, I deployed with the, the WASP Arg. So uh, I was there when we were doing the strikes off the coast of Libya against uh, ISIS and CERT. And then we came back, and now we're kind of in the readiness phase. We're working back up in the basic phase to deploy with the Kearsarge here in November, but I'll transfer before that. And then before that, I was on uh, LPD-23 U.S. Anchorage out in uh, San Diego, which was awesome. And I was the electrical officer and the fire control officer. So let's let's go back a little bit because uh, we want to sort of dissect uh, patient zero, if you will. Um, so... <laughs> Where did you where did you grow up? I know you went to school at Duke and a Duke ROTC uh, guy, but where where did you grow up and and how did you decide that you wanted to pursue a career in the Navy? <laughs> Definitely. So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, lived there all eighteen years. Uh, no one in my family is in the military except 
my grandfather was, and so I was the first grandson. And so all, and he was in World War II in, in the Navy. And so all of that kind of love of the Navy and, and his experience World War II got channeled into me. So when I was three years old, you know, my whole bedroom was Navy stuff, and I've got a ton of Navy books and pictures and postcards, and he would tell me stories. And so he kind of just, you know, inculcated that in me when I was so young uh, that it's just, it's, it's been kind of my passion ever since. It's, uh, it's one of my, talking about the Navy and Naval strategy has always been high on my list, even when I was a kid. Um, but obviously I didn't know anything <laughs> then. And then my grandpa passed away when I was eight. So it kind of stinks because, you know, now especially, you know, I've, I've seen a good amount and, and done some cool stuff. It'd be cool to, you know, hear more, you know, obviously at eight years old, you can't really ask too many questions. So I kind of just, you know, was in receive only mode for all of his uh, World War II stuff, but uh, it's pretty cool. He was a, I don't know what his rate was, but he was enlisted. He was 18. He almost died of scarlet fever, actually, in boot camp uh, in the Great Lakes, and then he got to Hawaii early 1940, late, late 1944, and uh, he actually he was on a supply ship that sank in one of the typhoons. I call these typhoon, and uh, he didn't know how to swim, so he jumped from his sinking ship to the cargo net of a ship trying to assist them and got hauled aboard. And then he spent uh, a year in occupied Japan. So he had pretty, pretty cool experience in the Navy. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. yeah. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and now you have stories that you'd love to tell him if, uh, if he were still around. So that's, that's a great exactly. you know, family legacy story. Um, so you went to Duke. Uh, was yep. there a particular reason uh, you, you chose Duke? Uh, I Duke was always pretty high on my list when I was applying for schools. Uh, I mean, college nowadays is so crazy. So I, I applied to eight schools. I got into three, waitlisted at three, and rejected at two. So uh, my number one had been Stanford, didn't work out, and then Duke was number two, so it did. Uh, I love the South. Uh, Duke has a really good – so I studied economics and international relations, and uh, Duke has really good programs in both of those. And uh, I don't know. I really like Duke's culture, uh, both – in applying, like what I thought it was, and then luckily was born out in real life. Uh, it's very collaborative and friendly, and uh, it's super diverse, intellectually stimulating. Just like the SWO community. Just like the SWO community. And I got to travel a lot uh, through like Duke sponsored programs. So I, I studied abroad at Oxford, uh, which was also it was great because that was the same summer as the Olympics. So I got to go to the Olympics a bunch uh, in London in 2012. And then I did uh, study abroad uh, at the Sorbonne in Paris in that, that fall. So it was really cool that the Navy and Duke allowed me to do that. Yeah, that's, that's some fantastic stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll like Duke better once Grayson Allen graduates. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've, I've been there in the, uh, yeah, very cool campus and obviously a much lauded uh, program there. Have you always been uh, a, a writer, a man of letters, very, uh, you know, well-read and well-written kind of guy? I would say so. Writing's always been, I would say, of all my like academic things, my, my two strengths have always been history and writing. So proceedings is kind of a, you know, think, things like proceedings, naval strategy, naval history, have always kind of been in my wheelhouse. So, so yeah, pretty much, yeah. So when, when were you first exposed to uh, the Naval Institute and or proceedings? Ooh. So when I was 13 or 14, uh, so I guess, so yeah, so when I was 13, I was in seventh grade, and my math teacher's son was graduating like 
third or second in his class at the Naval Academy, and he got, you know, super smart, brilliant, hardworking, you know, great American kind of a thing, went to, uh, went to UPenn to get a master's right after it, became a Navy SEAL, um, so she would tell us all these stories about him, and we're just like, oh, he's the coolest guy ever, and so, you know, my grandpa had passed when I was eight, and so all that Navy stuff was still kind of in, in the back of my head, but, you know, kind of faded from the forefront, so her stories kind of got me interested in the Naval Academy and joining the Navy and all that stuff all over again. And so in eighth grade, I decided I was going to go to the Naval Academy and I decided that I was going to start, you know, my, my Navy prep now. And so I subscribed to proceedings and it was either, yeah, it was, I think maybe my freshman year of high school, I subscribed to proceedings. So, uh, so, so wait a second. Time, so at, at, at age 14 or 15, you, became a member of the Naval Institute on your own volition. That's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> pretty much. We need to clone you. Yes, we do. <laughs> Times that's 10,000. That's a great story. <laughs> oh, but uh, at the time, obviously, I didn't understand any of it. I'm like, yeah, of course we should increase training. Or, yeah, this makes, you know, it was like, it was so superficial, my understanding that the articles like didn't, weren't able to resonate. I didn't see all the nuance between the words. Um, so I, I would read them. But uh, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, didn't make a ton of sense. But uh, now, obviously, it, it makes way more sense, and uh, it's really fun to uh, to see all the different pieces, all the articles, and I mean, proceedings is one of my favorite favorite things to read. I read a good. I read a lot, um, but uh, I always make sure I read every uh, every issue of proceedings. So, before we talk about some of uh, your specific features, uh, the articles you've written in, in recent months, as Bill said, you're. You're not becoming prolific. You are prolific, um, <laughs> because you know you you are you know axiomatically as a function of your your contributions to proceedings, you and and your involvement in the independent forum, you are a thought leader among your peer group. So, what would you say is the state of the Navy as you look at it uh, across the JO ranks? Um, you know, how's morale, how's career aspirations, how are resources, how how are you guys feeling about leadership, how are you feeling about uh, support from the enlisted mess and so forth and so on? Um, you know, how's how I know I'm throwing a lot in this one question, yeah, just, just taking a <laughs> yeah. temperature. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what because, what, what, you know, we spent the whole summer beating the surface Navy up, basically. You know, and Bill and I are, are, are among the flagellators there, um, along with our good friend Kevin Iyer. Um and and there's, let's just say deservedly so on some fronts. But you know, but I've always been a lieutenant, Lieutenant JG at heart, and uh, um, that's where I've always written from that that point of view, in in terms of my fiction, um, and that's where my heart is, right? And and so when it looks like the graybeards are piling on. I, I tend to want to hear from the J.O. So uh, how how are things in, in the most general sense? And, and uh, you know, how are you feeling about uh, how things are trending? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question. So I... Yeah, I ask tough I thought, questions. I mean, is, I'm a hard-bitten news <laughs> no, guy. No, it's good. It's, it's a very, very good question. Uh, and, you know, good questions are hard. So the... Oh, I think... At the most basic element of it, things are improving, but the the thing is the the Navy, the institution that is the Navy, is starting to recognize some of its warts and beginning to change some of the 
the really dumb stuff, to put it mildly. Um, but the fundamental culture is still off. And, it, and it, it's really tough to identify exactly what within that is, is wrong because um, not everything's wrong. And that's kind of what I've, I've learned in the last, especially two years being on a staff and kind of seeing it very from a very different perspective of uh, not just the kind of, you know, deck plate on board a ship level, but also all the staffs, all the short commands, the admirals, the executive leadership and everything. You know, it's kind of given me a lot more perspective than when I was a <laughs> very uh, frustrated ensign. But at the base of it, I mean, I think that the numbers kind of speak for themselves. So from my ship, and I had a, I cannot, I cannot toot the horn of my first ship more. I loved the USS Anchorage. I cannot imagine a better first tour. Um, I had a great group, like peer group, um, great captains. Uh, and of the eight of us right now, only one person is thinking about saying it. And that's pretty, pretty tough. And when I look at like my, my, my other friends on other ships, it, it's roughly similar numbers. Um, the, the actual for retention rate is around 35%. So, you know, obviously maybe, maybe things change from second tour to short tour and then people decide to save for department head. But there's just a, oh, gosh, there's, it, it's tough in the broadest sense to, to give an analysis of it because there, there's so many parts of it and I don't want to paint the wrong brush, but there's just something amiss in how we recruit, how we train, how we treat uh, and build junior officers. And it leads to this, this is kind of intangible frustration and apathy. Like, so, so like you said, you know, oh, I, I write all these articles, you know, junior officer thought leader, when I was on my first shift, so the first article I had published with proceedings was I was in, I was about six months into the Navy. And I was an ensign and I submitted an entry for the general essay contest. And I wrote about uh, contractors called deconstructing Navy Inc. It was published sometime in early 2015. And when it came out, my friends on the ship were like, Oh, it's so cool. Daniel, you know, congrats. That's, that's really cool. I really liked your article, but None of the department heads read it. My captain didn't read it. My exo didn't read it. No one cared. And there was just kind of that, that, that has really stuck with me. And, and it's kind of, there's admirals think a lot about these big policy issues and some JOs are really clued into it, but there's just not this internal mechanism where you've got lots of people actively thinking about, you know, national security, naval policy, reforming the Navy, just that, that intellectual vitality I think is missing. And, and that's in large part because there's not this culture of responsibility of like we own our own Navy. It's much more seen in a lot of circles as kind of a, a government or bureaucratic job of like, you know, you check all the boxes, you keep going. I mean, every department head who, you know, wants to sell or uh, every, every pitch I've ever heard from a department head on, on staying in the Navy, they always talk about it's just 20 years. It's good pay. The, you know, the pension is nice. And it's like, that's not why you should want to stay at your job. It's because you believe in the mission and you love the people and you find it fulfilling. And, you know, and, and that is what the Navy needs to shift to is really believing and internalizing that at every level. Um, I mean, I, sh- I know admirals believe that, you know, that's why they've stuck it out 40 years. They, you know, really believe they see the national security stuff. Hey, but, hey uh, Daniel, Daniel. So you, you mentioned apathy, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious because one of the themes that came out of the comprehensive review and the, the strategic readiness review and the, the multiple things that 
were written for proceedings after the Fitzgerald and McCain uh, collisions last year. One of the things that came out was exhaustion, right? Uh, particularly among, uh, you know, crews on ships, uh, worked hard, never get time off at sea all the time, you know, from, and then when they're, when they're back in port, they're also working constantly to try to get all the maintenance Mm -hmm. that needs to be done. And some of the maintenance can't be funded. And so the crews are making up for the lack of shipyard capacity. So, you know, another, Another side of the coin of apathy, I think, can can oftentimes be exhaustion, right? I'm too tired to care. I'm too tired to read. Mm -hmm. I'm too tired to like, oh, my God, I'm just I'm just facing the next alligator closest to the canoe. Yeah, I I agree. But uh, before we go on the op tempo, you know, uh, tributary, um, I want to key on something that Daniel just said, but but on a more uh, sort of personal level to his disappointment that his chain of command didn't recognize that he'd been published in proceedings, right? Now, he, he couched it in, they're not involved in the intellectual discourse, but, you know, for crying out loud, your subordinate was published in the Navy's preeminent professional magazine, and you don't even know that? You don't even recognize that? Um, that's bad leadership, and and it doesn't yeah. encourage... Yeah, amen. You know, and, and so, okay, never mind that, oh, and by the way... Uh, you know, Lieutenant J.G. Stephanus, you don't get to go home this weekend. And never mind that you're you're doing, you know, uh, you know, one in three watches or whatever. Right. He'll suck all of that up if he believes that his CEO has his back. And if there's referent uh, leadership going on and you're part of a cool team. I mean, the, the hardest job I ever had was CAG Ops and I loved it. You know, and I did back to back sea duty. And, you know, I was I hated to leave, you know. And uh, life was complicated back at uh, at sh- on shore duty. You know, it was I, I longed for the times mm-hmm. when we were complying with an op order and a flight schedule, and we we're you know <laughs> doing bilats and and doing you know Operation Southern Watch and all of that stuff. You know, and we had everything at our command, and we had the support of our chain of command and and the 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 loyalty of our peers and and all of that. Right. So, I think. And this is what I've heard, and this is kind of what we heard from the uh, aviator that we were talking to. Who was yeah, that? Tony Kachansky. Yeah. Right, so, yep. uh, Daniel, I don't know if you heard that that show we did a few uh, weeks ago with an aviator, O4, who's getting out of uh, the Super Hornet community to go fly with the airlines, which sounds a lot like 1993 to me. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, the airlines are back and they're hiring. And so he also pointed to elements of sort of the – why would I do this when it looks like my CO is miserable? You know, what, mm-hmm. what, it, yeah, you know, exactly. The beatings no, will continue like, in, until morale improves. <laughs> right. So it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Well, that's good. And so that's one of the things that has been, so there was a great article you guys had, uh, I forget now, probably about a year ago or two that really resonated with me on increasing early command and how the Navy needs to find ways to get, younger officers back in command because, you know, right now as a swell, you don't command until 17, 18 years in, most, you know, at best, unless you, you know, again, get one of these tiny early commands or one of these few early command spots. And I mean, frankly, MCMs are pretty much the worst ships in the Navy. So it's like, I would love to command, but I don't know if I want to command an MCM. But it's just this idea of, yeah, like the, when you look, when you're, when you're a divo, so for me on my first ship, I said, I had a great peer group. I mean, I cannot sing the praises enough of the peers, that of the other divos that I had, both first and second tours. But when we looked at our department heads, 
it was just, again, like they would sell us on this, you know, it's good pay, you know, ride it out. The Navy's a good gig. Getting a job on the outside is scary. And it was just like, this, you know, again, like I, it just wasn't inspiring. And they were so tired. And I mean, like, so I, I stayed with a, a department head over the summer, two summers ago, I guess, when I was about to uh, transfer out to Libya or out, I guess out to the Mediterranean to join the WASP. And she was now, and she was on a troubled destroyer, but she would go in at five in the morning and she'd come home at nine at night. And I was just like, I don't know how you do this. Like that is, you know, that is crazy. And I mean, like you said, long hours are justifiable or even good if you really believe in the mission. But when it's just, you know, paperwork and maintenance and readiness and meetings, and you're not really war fighting or following this big Navy mission. Again, all those things are important, but well, and, and you also feel unappreciated, uh-huh. right? And you don't, you yeah. don't believe you have the support of your CO maybe, you know, and feel like you feel like he's just waiting for you to screw something up so he can build you. Right. So it, there's no upside, you know, it's, yeah. it's long hours and no cool chemistry while you're working long hours. Um, and you don't feel like it's, it's, it's going to help you professionally to put in the work. You know, I mean, I was aide to Air Land, uh, and I worked really long hours, but I really got to love the guy I worked for, and the staff he'd assembled was awesome, taught me a lot about staff work, because all I'd done is be in squadrons before then, um, and it truly helped me professionally after that, both in terms of the orders I received, but also in terms of my perspective. You know, the blinders came off because I was allowed to see it that way, right? Um, and, and so yeah. that was a function of the leader uh, I worked for uh, at that time, you know, and, and so, I, I mean, that's what taught me a lot because I was a lazy son of a bitch when I was a J.O. You know, I was the first <laughs> guy out. I was didn't want to do weekends. You know, I had a lot of professional growing up to do in my first tour, you know, as your typical quote unquote academy grad. Um, and when I took some of these hard jobs, I realized that, hey, I actually do have a decent work ethic. I just haven't been mm-hmm. led well. You know, and, exactly. and so once I had that aha moment, I was in it to win it, you know. And so, again, you know, what I hear is the old guy in the room when I when I hear, you know, the testimonials of, of, of guys like you, um, I'm, I'm hearing more and more leadership failure, you know. Um, so that that's that's a solvable problem. Right. And, and, and yeah. oh, you know, definitely. I mean, I, I very much look forward to the, 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 the time which is not too far in the future when you can put all of your lessons learned to practice and be the good CEO, you know, because that's what it's going to take. we got to push through this boundary, which is the the attitudes that your peer group faces. And you have to believe that it can be better because it can. Mm. And I will tell you this also as a guy who got out and didn't love life for a few years. Don't run away from it. You know, go to yeah. something. Don't run from it, you know, because you will exactly. miss you will miss Everything that I know you want because you fully respect what, what you have at your disposal. But, you know, I just I, I, I it frustrates me um, as the old guy to, to hear the failure of leadership. And we blame op tempo. We believe we blame sequester. We blame a bunch of stuff that that, you know, and really it comes down to if the CEO was just a decent guy who respected his charges, we'd be way ahead of where we are now. End of speech. Ward just got off his soapbox. Like, <laughs> when when I was uh, when I was thinking about this and kind of like things you guys might bring up and kind of you know preparing, 
that was one of the biggest things I, I wanted to bring up was, yeah, this, the Navy focuses so much on procedures and management, which, of course, are huge. But there's so little attention done to leadership and the cultivation of personal leadership and team building. Like, a lot of things are said about it, but very few, you know, actual exercises, actual, like, legitimate I hate the word courses because that's not really the right way to teach leadership. But, you know, some type of way to instruct and make people reflect on how they lead people, how to do it more effectively. I mean, there's this fallacy of simplicity that like, oh, it's easy to manage or lead. You just do it. And it's like, yeah, it is easy in the sense of you can just do it. But there are so many ways within that, you know, quote unquote simplicity to do it so much better, to optimize it, to actually, you know, build teams, make people like you, help build, have help people like each other, help them build skills, have this cohesion that, like you were talking about, means that, you know, when you're working 20 hours a day, sometimes it's okay because you you know that the, the end goal, the mission is super important, and you also know the people around you are also working really hard, and you're all a part of this together, and there's this collective mentality, and that's what a lot of people like about the military when it goes right, is you don't get that in the civilian sector in the same way. And so it's like if the military or the Navy in this case specifically can focus on building that cohesion um, and that culture of teams and positive leadership. And I mean, one of the biggest issues I see in service Navy, and I do know that I talked to uh, uh, an admiral about this who works in in manpower policy and stuff, uh, who's a SWO. And and when we discussed it, uh, I basically brought up the point that one of the biggest issues I see with the SWO community and how we do leadership is so much of it is about churning out these captains. So I had, in, in 24 months, I had three captains. All were great, none were fired. Each served between 9 and 14 months. And that's just not enough. And, and That was their total CO tour? That was their total CO tour. A nine-month um, tour. They, they had to crank them, crank them through to get the right number right. of joint no. joint qualified, exactly. command qualified, flag qualified. Right? It's exactly. it's, it's too fast. And There's a like, word for that. The There's a word for that. It's rubber stamping. That's not exactly. That doesn't help the Navy. Yeah. Because like so so my my last two captains and again all of my captains were really good in in their own ways, but each was very different. And my first captain of the three was the one who should have been a ship captain. He loved to see what is still the best ship driver I've ever seen. I mean, LPD is not a very maneuverable and navigable ship. And he would drive that thing like it was a sports car. It was insane because it means a pick on roller skates otherwise. But my other two captains were former XOs from carriers, both aviators, former XOs from carriers who had to do ship, ship, who had to do some kind of below carrier oh, was commanding it, officer it was their, job. Their so deep draft, right? carrier. Deep deep draft yeah. CO before being a carrier CO. Got it. Exactly. And yep. it's like that's fine. I mean, you know, I guess you, you don't want to just start with the carrier off the bat, I guess. But it meant that, you know, we had these two aviators who again, great people, great leaders, but they weren't ship drivers. They weren't ship captains. And if we just had the first guy for three years you know, and he's on the super, he's a sea dog, you know, he really knew the ship and how the ship handled and all of the stuff that went with being a SWO and the way the other two, you know, and they were very honest about it. They're like, you know, I'm not the expert here on ship driving, you know, and so they, they tried to make it more of a team environment. And, you know, again, a lot of the stuff was great, but from a just commanding officer perspective, to me, it was obvious that the first guy should have stayed the commanding officer for three years or, you know, had a long tour where he could really get into the job 
um, because he was so good at it. Why do we need to swap him out? And that's kind of, to me, the big problem with the Navy is this mentality of, like you guys were just saying, this rubber stamp, check in the box. You know, we need to have, you know, 4306 joint qualified post-command tour captains in, you know, September 2019 in order to, and it's just like, no, 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 no. Like, you need to have the right people in the right places. And if they're good, you, why do they need to be promoted? Like, why do they need to rotate out, you know? I don't know. No, no, that's that's exactly right. And and uh, among my theories are this this comes in waves. So uh, when I was a, a, a nugget, um, there were I was dealing with the Vietnam era uh, year groups uh, towards the end of the Vietnam War. You know, early seventies. Uh, and I, I have a theory about you know who stayed in and who got out against the cultural divide of that time. You know, I mean, imagine. Uh, the the charismatic referent leaders among you probably didn't see themselves as military officers, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so in any given peer group, think of your you know, your frat house or whatever, and the the guys who were the ones that you would like to follow, if not hang with, um, were, were probably not the ones who would make it a career in the early early seventies, right? So yeah. this is what has has happened post 9-11 in terms of the high op tempo, low resourcing, road hard, put away wet piece, you know, so the machine starts to fray, good people start to get out, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and so I I will say that at our last maritime uh, security dialogue at CSIS, Admiral Brown, the new ship boss, did say that he's confident that the screening process is great. It's watertight. He says they don't have to game it. Um, he's happy that anybody who slates or screens can slate anywhere. He says sometimes they do boutique solutions based on the command, but mostly he's confident that end-to-end uh, the process works. Um, so I have my doubts, um, but, you yeah. know, I'm just a retiree who has to trust what the three-star tells me, right? Um, so yeah. My my issue is, and I don't know how to resolve this because it's so anecdotal. Um, but my issue is when I when I talk to admirals, when I read pieces, when I see things, everything seems to be trending so positively and so well. And I, you know, I, I there's this huge disconnect between high level rhetoric and and actual policy. I mean, like I really do think that they are enacting things that are making things better, and they believe that it's becoming better, and they might believe it's already positive. But then on the deck plates, I mean, even just here in Norfolk, it is crazy how many friends I have on various ships who are just like, oh, yeah, my captain's the worst. You know, the chain of command is in chaos. You know, we do this, we do that. It doesn't make sense. No one believes in this person. And it's just like, like I, have, I, have, I have one friend specifically I'm thinking of. His captain has almost been relieved like four times, but then they won't finally do it. And it's just like if this person, if you even have to consider relieving them twice, that should be a red flag. But it's just this constant process of like how long is this captain going to stay in command or are they just going to finish out their ride and then someone is going to come in and they're never actually going to be punished for all these leadership failures. And it's just it's, it's mind-boggling to me how many, again, anecdotal examples I have of that um, – yeah. It's just, I don't know. I, I, Daniel, I don't know that's it. yeah. It's an interesting point. We we talked earlier about uh, Lieutenant Commander Kachansky, uh, who's written this piece called "The Road to Retention Is Paved with Good Intentions." Right? 
mm-hmm. about about aviation, the, the naval aviation retention crisis right now, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and he he juxtaposes congressional testimony by the chief of naval personnel recently in January about retention with what he knows from fellow JOs who are instructor pilots or you know nugget pilots in squadrons and and the, you know he he noted that that dissonance right you know you've got a three star who's in charge of naval personnel saying you know things are trending well the bonus is being well accepted the increases in flight pay or da 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 and and then you know in the informal survey as as you said earlier you know of the eight jos in your your group on your first ship you know one is staying in one plans to to proceed towards department head right so there's a there's that mm-hmm. disconnect so it's it's a it's tough, and as Ward said, you know, we were both in long enough to see it kind of come and go in waves, right? Uh, yeah. You know, it, it does. It, it, it The leadership sort of tends to come and go. Uh, I'm sorry that your first, first CEO didn't do what uh, my CEO did when I wrote for proceedings the first time. I was a lieutenant. I worked for a great guy named Jamie Kelly, who later became a two-star admiral. He was a A6 bombardier navigator, uh, and when I published my first thing in proceedings, he made a big deal of it, right? So everybody in our in our division, uh, you know, he, he highlighted that. He, we essentially headquarters and he was like, hey, look what GOAT did. You know, he, he wrote for proceedings. That's this is awesome. great, you know. And, and, and that spurred me as much as anything to write again uh, and to stay in the Navy and to keep going. So that's, that's a great thing. Hey, let me, we, we only have a couple more minutes. I want to ask you one question. Uh, as I, you know, we started this off and I introduced you and I said, you, you're an example of a guy who has cracked the nut, right? You have, you've cracked the code <laughs> on getting into proceedings and winning essay contests. What would your advice be to fellow junior officers about writing for proceedings, about writing for essay contests, about, you know, uh, the process and how to do it? Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest thing that people in general in writing, but especially for an essay contest, because at the end of the day it's a persuasive essay contest, is they don't have enough of a voice. So it can't just be this, this litany of facts with like a, you know, general hypothesis and this kind of this, you know, classic college paper. You really have to be personally, in, I, so pick an issue you're personally invested in because that will come out in the voice, that will manifest itself in the voice of the paper because it will be clear that you actually care about this thing. So that's my number one piece of advice. Um, and then my other, well, I guess two other points. So I, I said that I, I entered it, the general essay contest in 2014, and, and I didn't place it all because, the second point, you need to read, especially for the essay contest uh, that you're trying to enter, you should read the previous winners. So for the general essay contest, I realized, I read, I went back when I didn't win, I, and I went back and I read all of the previous winners from the last you know, four or five years before that, and I realized they were all kind of sweeping, big Navy geopolitical pieces and I had written the piece on contractors and that was just, you know, never going to be the piece that won because it was on contractors, not on the whole Navy's maintenance program or the whole Navy's, you know, geopolitical outlook, outlook with China or whatever it is. So you need to assess and analyze as much as you can about that essay contest and what will win within the, the bounds of its limits um, or the style of what was previously successful and yeah that, that that's a great point you know um and, and we have about 10 essay contests and we are we we advertise mm-hmm. them in proceedings we advertise them on our website www.usni.org uh and there's a tab for contests uh and some of them are 
you know, big picture issues, the general prize essay contest, the Marine Corps essay contest, the Coast Guard essay contest. We want we want big thoughts about the future of those services. Right. Um, you know, big exactly. war fighting. How is it? How are you going to change the, 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 the trajectory of the service or, or a big part of it? Right. And uh, mm-hmm. and then and then we have other uh, essay contests which are much more focused, uh, le- the leadership yeah. essay contest uh, or the, the one we're judging. We are in the process of reading the seventy two papers on right now is the emerging and disruptive technology essay contest where people get into, uh, you know, software driven radios or quantum computing mm. or um, yeah. You know, how is the F-35 electronic warfare suite going to change, you know, what we do in the ARG? You know, I mean, very, very specified uh, technologies and and the application of those technologies. So that's a great point about, you know, reading previous essays for that contest and kind of getting a sense of what they were like, you know, the voice, Mm -hmm. the the topics, uh, and then... And then using that as a guide, that's a, that's great advice. Well, beyond the essay contest, Daniel, what would you tell, let's say you're sitting around on Liberty um, and, uh, you know, what, what would you tell a, a, a wardroom mate about membership in the Naval Institute? Why, why would somebody want to do that as a J.O. or, um, you know, a mid-grade enlisted person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. So winning the, the, the winning the general essay contest in twenty sixteen seventeen uh, completely opened up all these opportunities. And so the reason I would say for me, the reason I would say to someone like that, you should join the Naval Institute, be involved in it, is it's a pretty small group uh, of people within the Navy who really care about these ideas um, and things. But usually, those are the most passionate, interesting, intelligent, successful people. So even though it's this kind of small group, some seemingly small group sometimes, once you all start to get to know each other, I mean, through proceedings I've gotten, or proceedings the Naval Institute, I've met so many, so I just briefed through through the Naval Institute, I just briefed the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Commandant of the Coast Guard on resiliency. And it's just, you know, stuff like this is crazy. You know, if you had told me as an ensign that I'd, you know, have a two-star as my mentor, and I'd, you know, be briefing the Commandant of the Marine Corps and, and uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard, that I'd interview with the Vice Chief uh, of the Navy to be a speechwriter, you know, all that stuff, I'd be like, no way, man, you're nuts. Like, there's no way that's going to happen as a JG. And that's all happened thanks to the Naval Institute and all of the essay contests and networking events and West and all these things. So it's, it's been a great experience. Well, it's a small group. We're we're trying to make it a big group, you know, and and so, you know, thank <laughs> you for uh, for being, uh, you know, a bright shining example of how to do it right. Um, and we look forward to more of your writing, and we look forward to watching your career progression. And uh, you know, uh, you know, here's to you keeping your morale up and, and staying in uh, because uh, the nation needs guys like you and 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 girls like you to to do just that. And we'll see you in May, May second at the. Uh the annual meeting, uh, which is in Washington, D.C. at CSIS, because Daniel uh, just placed second in the General Prize Essay Contest for 2017. So we'll publish his his latest uh, article in the May, I think the May issue or the April issue. And uh, and he'll get his award uh, and a nice big check uh, at, at CSIS on uh, May 2nd. He's like the Patriots. He's a franchise. He's a he dynasty. He's got to start buying us <laughs> yeah. beer, though. Yeah. No, he'll buy us beer. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Well, thanks for uh, for coming by today, and uh, and uh, keep us posted on what's going on. And uh, uh, you know, thanks for everything you're doing out there. Sounds great. Thank you two both for having me. This was awesome. Okay. Thanks.
Have a good one. Bye. All right. Well, that wraps up the 21st episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks for joining us today and, uh, and every week. Uh, for Ward Carroll, I'm Bill Hamblett, and we are out. Just a reminder, victory begins at the Naval Institute. <laughs>